Hi, I'm Jalen Rose, and welcome to this week's Renaissance Man podcast. My theme for this week is every breakdown is a breakthrough, featuring CeCe Sabathia. Let's go. Hi, I'm Jalen Rose, and welcome to the Renaissance Man podcast presented by the New York Post, a show where we cover trends in fashion, entertainment, current events, and everything in between. Tell a friend to tell a friend every Thursday. I do a column in the New York Post newspaper, a physical column in the New York Post. Make sure you check it out. Download, subscribe, leave a five-star rating. Appreciate the love. This week's episode The theme is every breakdown is a breakthrough. There have been a lot of stories, friends and family members, things that I've read and been exposed to about substance abuse. But the story that has stuck with me the most, that has had the most impact in my life, was the substance abuse story of Lynn Bias. One of the best collegiate basketball players of all time. Lynn Bias was a powerful guy that played up front, but also had the bounce of like a Dominique Wilkins who had a 50-inch vertical. So just think about this now. Lynn Bias, 6'9", 240, 50 pounds, the bounce of a Dominique Wilkins, the mid-range game of a Bernard King. Tough as they come, catching lobs, everything. So let me take you youngsters back to the 80s, the glory years of the NBA. Magic Johnson gets drafted in 79-80. So did a gentleman named Larry Joe Bird. And in the decade of the 80s, the Lakers would win five championships. The Boston Celtics would win three. The Celtics had some injuries to Larry Bird's back. And therefore, they ended up in the lottery. And the late, great Red Arback was in position to draft the player that was going to catapult the legend of the Boston Celtics into the next decade. This is June 1986. His dream come true. His dream happens. He gets drafted. By the Boston Celtics. That night after he got picked, his way of celebrating was using drugs. He overdosed and died and never played in an NBA game. I was 13 years of age. I was horrified. The limb bias death on and off the floor as a teenager, along with watching how it damaged my community. And my family, watching neighbors and family members use and abuse drugs, lose their lives, lose their livelihoods, lose their families. I knew that drugs was not the route that I wanted to take. So again, think about what I'm telling you. Late 90s, if Lynn Bias gets drafted by the Celtics in 1986, which by the way, 
The Celtics in a couple of those years had arguably the greatest basketball teams ever assembled. A couple of years later, do my Detroit Pistons win the championship if Lynn Bias is a member of the Boston Celtics? Let's go to the 90s. Does Michael Jordan three-peat? Does he continue to win the East if Lynn Bias is a member of the Celtics? How about when Jordan retires? Does Akeem Olajuwon win back-to-back championships if Lynn Bias is a member of the Celtics? Okay, what about when MJ returns and wins three more championships? Does that happen if Lynn Bias is a member of the Celtics? What about Tim Duncan and the San Antonio Spurs? Does he win his early championships if the Celtics have Lynn Bias? Unfortunately, we'll never know because of substance abuse. My next guest sadly dealt with his own bout of substance abuse, but fortunately, he was able to come out on the other side with flying colors. Please welcome CC Sabathia. This week's episode is a family affair. And for those that know, you really know that Detroit in the Bay Area, we brothers from another mother. (laughs) We're cousins. And the next gentleman that's joining me is from Vallejo. You may know him from his exploits as a Hall of Fame, future Hall of Fame baseball player, 2009 champion, a ALCS MVP, a six-time All-Star, but more importantly, a class human being and someone I respect a lot. CC Sabathia, welcome to the program. What's going on, Jay? Appreciate you having me. Always, always. So what drew you to the game of baseball and what can be done to inspire more American-born players to want to play the game? You know what? Uh, growing up in Vallejo, it's a baseball city. Like, we grew up, that's what we played. I mean, we played everything. We played basketball, played football. Uh, we played soccer, too. But this is a baseball town. Like, literally, everybody played baseball. So, you know, we grew up learning the fundamentals and, you know, all of that stuff. And, you know, you get a bunch of inner-city black kids on the baseball field, we automatically going to be the, the most athletic. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, I mean, it, it was just a lot of fun to grow up in that environment. And it just bred so much competition that, you know, we literally just grew up baseball kids. And I think, you know, getting back to, you know, what could be done is just trying to bring equipment back to the hood. You know what I mean? And, uh-huh. you know, baseball is an expensive sport. You know, you need you need bats, you need gloves, you need cleats, you need, you know, a place to play. So with this Players Alliance that we have going on now, we're just trying to provide equipment that, you know, all, as much as we can. We need to try to provide programs. You know, if it's camps, satellite camps, you know, a lot of these kids now are getting drafted off numbers, you know, exit velo and spin rate and all that stuff. And these kids in the hood don't have access to these radar guns or to the track man or to the rap soto. So, you know, it's up to us as players to get these kids this technology and get them back in the game because we're getting weeded out of the game by the technology. And since we're doing this podcast and column for the New York Post, there's so many Yankee fans that would love for me to talk to you about being a crafty lefty striking out so many people. But as we connected to the Zoom, the first thing I told you, as somebody that respects you and has followed your entire career, I really applaud and appreciate a lot of the things that you've done post-baseball. 
In your current documentary, Under the Grapefruit Tree, it debuts on HBO December 22nd, mm-hmm. where we learn more about your illustrious life and career. Tell the viewers about Under the Grapefruit Tree and why your life story is important for you to tell right now. You know, it's crazy. It's even like down to the title. It's just authentic. You know, everything about the doc is me. I mean, you know, I grew up in, in the crest. I grew up in the, in the hood, but we had this big ass grapefruit tree in my backyard that my grandma used to get mad when I picked the grapefruits off the tree. So I had to get the dead ones <laughs> off the ground. And I would take this folding chair and I would set up a folding chair and I would go back there and pick up the grapefruits off the ground and literally throw and strike people out. You know what I'm saying? Like I would be on the mail, like I'm Dave Stewart, shit tripping all over my hand, but like I'm throwing these grapefruits. So that's literally how I learned how to pitch. But this doc is, you know, it's, it's just about everything that I've been through. You know, all the deaths, ups and downs. I think, I feel like my dad always gets a, a bad rap in my story. Um, mm. You know, everybody always wants to write the story about the, you know, the strong black, you know, uh, single mother that raised the the athlete. But that wasn't the case in my, in my situation. My mom is incredibly strong. She's an incredible woman. She did incredible things for me to be sitting here today. But my dad is a huge part of my life and a huge part of my story. And I honestly think, Jalen, if he doesn't pass away, I never go to rehab. Wow. You know, I, I never go down this path of out of controlness and drinking and all of that stuff just because of the relationship that me and him had. So I wanted to be able to tell his side of the story through my eyes and make sure that he get his fair due and, and people understand that he is literally the reason why I ended up signing in New York and becoming mm. a Yankee and the reason why I you know, got to play in the big league. And I love this Renaissance Man opportunity because it gives me a chance to decompress. And this is therapeutic for me as well. And that's why I like to have people on that I admire but are also interesting to me. Because over the last 12 months, I lost so many stalwarts in my family. I lost my uncle, who was my mother's oldest brother. I lost my oldest brother And then I lost my grandmother, who was the matriarch of the family, at 103 years old. So that type of trauma, especially growing up where you're from and where I'm from, we taught to be tough and suck it up Mm -hmm. and find a way to deal with it. Can you just talk to so many people that have dealt with some sort of pain and anguish in their life and some of the things that they can possibly do or you've done to help get over it? Man, you know what? The, the biggest thing that, that I did was I went to therapy, going to rehab and being able to talk about it and get it off my chest. Because like you said, we are taught to to, to just deal with it and suck it up and, you know, just get by it. I mean, the, all those deaths that you just named right there, I had that happen two different times. I had that happen in, in high school where wow. three of my, my grandmother passed away two months before I get drafted. My uncle passed away, you know, a month before that. And then... In 2003, my, my dad passed away in December. My uncle passed away the next April. And then my cousin, who I'm super close with, passed away in June. So, like, that dealing with that, like, dealing with that trauma or not dealing with that trauma mm-hmm. is, depends on how, you, you know, you set yourself up for the rest of your life. Obviously, me not dealing with it, I had to go to rehab to be able to, to get those feelings out and get those emotions out and, you know, really take a look and, and sit back and, and mourn. And grieve and, you know, give yourself a chance to to breathe and and it's okay to cry. You know what I'm saying? Uh It's okay to show emotion. You know, it'll be a day, you know, in the middle of the week, one day I'll wake up and, you know, I'll start thinking about my dad and I'll just cry. Or I'm, you know, sitting here watching the Raiders and think about, you know what I'm saying? Like, Uh so it's so many different things that, you know, remind you of the people that you miss or to remind you of the people why 
for us what motivated us to be become these athletes. You know what I'm saying? My grandmother was was the the motivator behind me wanting to be, you know get her out of that life, and you know mm-hmm. I want to buy her all these different clothes and different trips exactly. and stuff like that. And I never got a chance to do that. She passed away literally two months before we hit the lottery. I get drafted in the first round two months mm-hmm. later. So it's just you know it's tough, man, to 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 deal with. Even still thinking about that now, it's tough to deal with. You know. I appreciate you being very open about that because I'm a firm believer that it's the hardships and the hard times that build character and make us who we are. So the theme behind this episode is every breakdown is a breakthrough. In your latest memoir, just released, Till the End, you talk about baseball, but you get personal about family and your battles with addiction. What was your lowest point and when did you realize you needed to change? Man, I think it's crazy because I had so many different, for me, low points. And everybody's low point is different, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, I had the incident in 2012 when me and Amber get into a fight and I drive my drop top down and, and, and hit a tree, drive through a fence, and I almost killed myself. And for me now, looking back on it, that, that would have been rock bottom. But when, in that moment, I still thought that I could drink. I still thought that I could handle it. Like, I still didn't think, you know, I was an alcoholic. I wasn't ready to face that. But my number one no point is when I'm when I decided to go to rehab and I'm sitting in rehab and I'm basically in like a, a mental health ward of the rehab facility. When you first check in, they got to detox you and they take you. You know, I'm sitting there with Nikes on and no shoestrings and my tongues are flipped out. I got my sweats on there inside out. And I basically have on like a medical gown that I'm sitting here and I'm watching the Yankees play against the Astros in the AL in the in the AL wildcard game. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just like. It was almost like it wasn't me, like, sitting there. It was the weirdest experience I've ever had in my life. And I, as I'm sitting there watching that game, is when I made the decision that I, I didn't want to live this life. I don't want to be this person. I don't want to be this sad story that's a headline in the post. And every time I get in trouble or get arrested, or you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. I didn't want to go down that path. And I made that decision while I'm sitting there in this medical gown watching my teammates play. In a playoff game, like I, I had to make that decision that I wanted to dig deep and really figure out what was triggering me to drink so much. Now, that's an interesting point because growing up as a have not or in the inner city, a lot of times we're going to glorify the things that we feel like can get us rich, in particular, get rich quick. So we're going to idolize sports. We're going to idolize entertainment, but we're going to also idolize that street life and that fast money. So you as someone that accomplished so very much, you're seeing yourself in your team playing on TV. What was it like for your cellmates, your inmates? What did they say? What did you learn from being around them? You know what? It was like, uh, it was almost like when we were watching that game at that time, the, the, the other people that were in the facility, they weren't talking to me. You know what I'm saying? Like they weren't, nobody, would. they, they were just trying to see how I was going to react. The biggest thing that I learned from rehab, though, is that, like I said, everybody's rock bottom is different. Mm-hmm. And I just, I saw people that I didn't want to end up like. It was this one guy in there. I mean, I, you know, I'm going to tell the story, but, you know, it was this one guy in there, older guy, had a bunch of money, super successful, you could tell. I mean, you know, had all the money in the world, everything, but had been in rehab seven times and wife had left him. And he couldn't get in contact with his kids. All he was trying to do the whole 30 days we were in there was reconnect with his kids. He had four kids that they wouldn't even be in his life. You know what I'm saying? So it's just like I saw that and I was like, 
I don't want to be that. You know what I'm saying? So it was just, I used that as an example of to get my stuff together. So I didn't want to, you know, end up in, in that situation 20 years from now. What was your toughest challenge or adjustment after your baseball career was over? Uh, man, it's been fun. It's been <laughs> fun, like, being retired. I, I keep telling people I should have did this five years ago. You crushing them. I'm seeing, you know, multi-outlets, <laughs> producing, hosting, radio, podcast. It, it's just fun. It's just like, you know, being able to do, be on my own schedule and do what I want to do, you know? Obviously, having that chance to work at ESPN during my last season, uh, helped me out and kind of figured out, you know, what I want to do and what I don't want to do, like kind of navigating. And it's been fun, man. I, I really enjoy retirement. I really enjoy my family. I love being around my kids. So, you know, I still want to keep my connection to the Yankees, but I mean, I'm just ready for whatever's next, whether it's more documentaries. I want to do a, a documentary on the Black Aces, um, the 15 guys that have won 20 games in the big leagues. I want to do more Negro League stuff, tell more stories about the Negro Leagues and just, uh, you know, just just, you know, keep doing my philanthropy and, uh, you know, just keep hanging out. Do you believe that there's more that Major League Baseball can do for players to prepare them for their retirement? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, the, I think the NBA and the NFL do a great job. The, the thing about Major League Baseball, though, is just so unpredictable of when of when you're going to be done, you know, so. Is a guy in his eighth year going to go to a program to be retired or, you know what I'm saying? Like, when, right. like when do you qualify to be able to go to that program? Great point. Baseball is one of those those sports, though, where you do have a lot of opportunities after the game, you know, to work in the game, stay around in the front office, go work at MLB Network. So they do have those opportunities. But it's just hard to kind of set up those things because you don't know, you know, when does a guy qualify to be able to go into those camps? A couple of more before I let you get out of here. Somebody that's written a best-selling book, and I'm really proud to do so. I thought that writing a book means I'm going to hire a writer. They're going to learn everything about me. He just going to write a book and ain't really got to talk to me. He going to yeah. take care of everything. And then you realize you got to unpack your whole life, your stories, your pictures, everything. So what did you learn about yourself in writing this memoir? Uh... I learned, you know what I learned is that I, I lumped trauma all together. Mm. You know what I mean? So, like, my cousin, I had a cousin that got shot during a robbery in 1992. And my grandfather passed away in 1994. But, I like, I lumped everything all together. That's, like, the biggest thing in, in the storytelling of the, of the book is that I had to, like, fact check everything. Like, my own story, I had to go back and, like... Ask people, like, did this happen? You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Gotta make sure it's authentic. Yeah, even, like, some of the stories, like, you know, growing up as a kid, like, just some of the stuff that happened in the hood is, like, it was it was weird to actually, like, be telling the guy, you know, Chris, the guy, Chris Smith, the guy who wrote the book with me, I'd be telling them stories about stuff that i seen as, like, a seven, eight-year-old, and his jaw be dropped, and I'd be like, damn, I, like, it was just just those things, just learning that, you know, the way we grew up is not normal. And last but not least, and again, Cece, thank you very much for being so gracious with your time. Is there a lesson that you want listeners to walk away with from your life and career? Um, I think just that everybody has struggles. You know, athletes are normal people just like everybody else. And, you know, if you feel like you need help, go get help. I mean, the hardest thing about facing addiction and going to rehab was actually facing it was actually admitting it, looking in the mirror and saying that I need help. Everything else about it after that has been fantastic. Best, best decision I ever made in my life. 
even the 29 days in rehab. I tell my wife all the time, I wish I could get those 30 days back right now. Like, nobody, everybody knows where I'm at. I ain't got my phone and nobody messing with me. I'm worried. About, I'm working on my inner self. It's so peaceful. So if you feel like you need help, if you feel like something is, is in there that you can't get out, please go get help because it can turn your life around for sure. Before I get out of here, I have a rapid fire segment I like to do with my guest called Gone in 60 Seconds, presented by Tri-State Cadillac Dealers. All right. Let's make it happen. Favorite spot in New York City to grab a slice? Uh, Prince Street Pizza. Who is a person dead alive you wish you could have played alongside as a teammate? Oh, man, I wish I could have played with Doc Ellis. Yeah, you know who that is? No. He's a pitcher. He pitched in the 70s. I definitely in the 70s. Like, I should have pitched in the 70s. But he's a pitcher, pitched in the 70s, through a no-hitter, uh, high on LSD. Wow. He's an L.A. guy. He's got a good story. He's got a good documentary. If you if you guys ever check it out, it's called uh, No-No. It's called No-No Documentary. Besides your phone, give me a piece of technology that you can't live without. My iPad. Away from baseball, CeCe Sabathia is a future Hall of Famer in which sport? Football or basketball? Football. What position? I, man, you know what? I played tight end in high school. And this is the reason why I didn't go to college, because somebody would have got me on the uh, college campus and I would have turned right into a tackle. So I would have been like one of them offensive tackles that make all the money, you know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> Joe Thomas or something like that. Like Orlando Pace, you know what I'm saying? Like I would have been, been one of them type of life. Last but not least, who would you like to strike out more, LeBron James or Michael Jordan? Oh, uh, MJ for sure. Because <laughs> sure. he fucked so much. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> Even now, like, my shoulder's broken. I would love his ass to get in the box right now. Like, him out right now. You know, last time he came to one of my starts, I think I had, like, three or four walks or something, and I come out of the tunnel, and he gave me, before he even gave me a five, he was like, why are you walking so many people? So MJ for sure, for sure. Oh, oh man, that's dope. Well, we appreciate you. We're going to let you get out of here, my brother. Don't hesitate to reach out. Appreciate it. No problem. All right. Take care. Last call. This week's last call is about never passing judgment. You never know what other people are going through. Our guest, CeCe Sabathia was a New York Yankee, one of the best pitchers in all of baseball, and a World Series champion. But behind the accomplishments, fame, and bright lights, he was hurting emotionally and battling with substance abuse. It is important that we treat everyone with kindness and respect. It's important that we acknowledge every human's basic dignity, that we have empathy for every person's life situation. And when we see a person down or needing help with a particular issue, it's vital that we pick them up and help them get back on their feet. CC is like a lot of people we know. I'm sure we all have a friend or relative, or maybe it's ourselves who have struggled with a form of addiction or depression. Rather than kicking them while they're down, this is a great moment to establish trust and create a bond. Avoid name calling or lecturing 
or participating in the addiction with them. Are you struggling with the same addiction? Before you can help anyone, it's important that you help yourself first. Communication is key. You might be more than ready to let your loved one know how you feel about the issues. If you want them to change, you will probably have to change too, even if you don't have an addiction. If you show you're willing to try, your loved one will be more than likely willing to try as well. After you've established trust and communication, present them with treatment options. If they aren't ready for treatment, it's okay. Be honest about your feelings, but don't blame or humiliate your loved one. Have faith in your trust and bond you've built with them and trust the process. But also, it's important to practice patience because no change happens overnight. And remember, anything is possible when you have the right people to support you. I'm the Renaissance Man. See you next week.